Amen. If you'll open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. If you do not have your Bible, there should be one in front of you, and you can find that passage on page 920 of the Pew Bible. We would ask that you would follow along to see that these things are true. As you heard in Sunday school this morning, we don't want to only be a Bible-believing church. We want to be a Bible-preaching church, and how we do that is preaching through whole books of the Bible. And so currently we are going through the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Beginning in verse 19 of chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyrus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them, all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. My grandparents, who are now deceased, had a small farm in southwestern Minnesota where they farmed and raised their four children until they retired and moved to town. Now that town was a small town in comparison to the cities that we live in. It had a grand population of about 1,200 people, but yet it was called town. In many ways, their life was a, a simple one. Not to say that there wasn't problems, there were But those problems were much more of a local variety rather than a global one. There wasn't enough rain that spring. The cows got loose and destroyed some of the field. They were putting in a new stop sign at the four-way just outside of the farm in the city. And I remember my mom showing me the, the news, I call it news in parentheses, from the local weekly newspaper at my grandma's house. And in the news, it was who was born, who died, who came over to who's and who's house, who had overnight guests and where they were from. I'm kidding you not. How much the corn had grown since the last time the newspaper came out and upcoming festivals. Things that would never be reported in the USA Today or the New York Times But nevertheless, it was important and newsworthy to those living there. I say those things not to just purely reminisce or speak about the good old days, 
but rather to say I think there is a disturbing trend in our culture that is infatuated with the dramatic. We live in a uh, media-obsessed culture that I believe has fed into this problems where we have 24-hour news and we have social media that is always competing for our attention. Videos and posts that need to be more dramatic or more eye-popping than the last one in order to get more notice and more likes and more views. Just listening to my children watching some YouTube videos, the, the frequently heard phrase or phrases on those videos are always things of this nature. That's amazing. Oh my, I can't believe it. Awesome. And every other superlative that you can possibly imagine. But that is not reality, is it? Because the reality is that life, for the most part, is quite monotonous and ordinary. And dare I say it, boring. And yet we as a culture despise boring. So we attempt to spice it up and have a flair for the dramatic and make things more dramatic than they are. But I ask you, what is truer to reality in the world that God has given us? Planting corn and watching it grow or watching a video on how to prepare for a zombie apocalypse? Yes, one is more exciting than the other, I agree, but there are far greater lessons to be learned in the ordinary, in the mundane, than the world of make-believe. And I say all of that because I think we need to be careful in our own life, as well as in the life of the church, that we do not get caught up in this spirit of the age, where we do not create drama where we're not just looking for thrills, we're not blowing things out of proportion for the sake of spicing things up, spicing up our otherwise mundane lives. Or in the case of the church, we should not try to create events or experiences or even productions in order to grab attention. Because I think what you'll see in this passage this morning is a very ordinary church. Perhaps you would even say it's a boring church. And yet there was extraordinary things happening. Not because the church was manufacturing it, but because the Spirit of God was working through ordinary people and ordinary means. And I think what you see in this passage this morning from the church of Antioch is kind of the model for what we should be wanting and desiring in a church like ours. And I would propose to you is, in fact, what we should be longing for. Not man-made drama, but the dramatic work of the Spirit in and through the lives of others. We have three points this morning. They'll be very familiar to you all if you are members here or have been attending for a while. It is know, grow, and show. Our mission statement 
And I don't do so so much as a proof text, to use this as a proof text for our mission statement, but rather to demonstrate the purpose and the mission that is before us, one that we can never ultimately fulfill, none that we will never complete or perfect in this life. But I think what you'll see through this passage this morning is that it is the same purpose, it's the same mission of the church and has been the same purpose and mission of the church throughout centuries. And therefore, it's not new, it's not novel, but hopefully it is biblical. And it's the Spirit's plan for the ordinary Christian church. And so look with me at verse 19, where we see this aspect of knowing and worshiping the triune God. We see something very interesting. It says, now those were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen. We haven't seen or heard much about Stephen since his martyrdom in chapter 7, but I think it plays a very key and essential point in the book of Acts, because if you remember in chapter 1, Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he lays out the plan that you are to be my disciples in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and that he would not leave them or forsake them, but that he would send the Holy Spirit But he tells them very plainly that they are not to leave Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that comes in chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit is given, the gift of tongues is given, which in my opinion was actual languages. And this spirit and this gift of languages was given so that the gospel would go out to the ends of the earth. And what do we see the apostles and the church in Jerusalem doing once they have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and this wonderful gift? They go, right? Well, actually, no. It seems as if they stay and stay a little bit longer in Jerusalem and stay some more. It seems like they should be going, but they're not going. They are staying. And as I mentioned last week, I think it's much easier to stay than it is to go. It's much easier, if we admit it or not, to be inward-facing rather than outward-facing. I would say that it's our natural proclivity. It's the proclivity in all of us. It's much more comfortable just to kind of stay to ourselves, stick to ourselves, just gather people that we like around us than to break out of that and go into uncomfortable places. And we need to know that about ourselves and we need to fight against it. Why? Because the Lord will not allow it. He will not allow it in us nor did he allow it in the first century church. What did the Lord do to send them out? He sent persecution. See, Stephen's martyrdom was the impetus needed. It was the Holy Spirit prod to to get the church going. When I say that to us, because we need to understand that lesson. If we're not going to go, The Lord may get us going, and we may not like the way in which he employs to get us to go. 
might be much like a, a cattle prod that gets us off and going. I often say to my children, you can either be self-motivated or I can apply some external motivation. The first is hard. The second is a lot harder. And it's not fun. But it's your choice. And I think the Lord does the same in the church. I've said to our elders and even mentioned it to our staff this week that while the waters are calm, we need to row. And we need to put our are back into it, which means that we need to to row even stronger right now while things are peaceful because we don't know what tomorrow will bring or next week or next year or the next 10 years. We could and most likely encounter very rough waters ahead. So it's not time to take it easy. It's not time to rest on our laurels, whatever those may be. Because what we'll see and have seen throughout the book of Acts, is that the Lord desires for the good news of the gospel to go forth to all the nations. The early church was sent out. They were commanded by Christ, but they were spurred on because of persecution. And God is not concerned, or I should say his greatest concern is not our comforts, but rather that the whole world would know the good news of the gospel, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of our Lord as the waters cover the seas, Habakkuk 2, 14. That is the Old Testament prophecy. Jesus says something very similar in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 when he says that the Father has given authority to the Son to give life to all that he has commanded to have life. And then Jesus defines what that life is when he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and the Jesus, the Christ, whom you have sent. So you see that the command is therefore twofold, isn't it? First and foremost, we would know Christ, that we would know the triune God through Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And having come to know this Christ and getting to know him in a greater way, which is an ongoing process, is it? We never arrive in our knowledge. Our knowledge is ever increasing. And I would even tell you that even in eternity, our knowledge of the infinite God will never run out because he is infinite and glorious. But as we know him, we should be a part of others knowing him too and leading them along into that knowledge. You have that wonderful passage in Romans chapter 10 where Paul says, how will they know if they have not believed? And how will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear if someone does not go and is not sent to preach? And how will they preach if someone is not sent out? Therefore, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of the gospel. If you follow the logic of this verse, we sinned and are sent so that the world would know and that the world would believe. And as they know that they would worship because the Father is seeking 
such to worship him, that worship him in spirit and in truth. Pastor John Piper has a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And it's a direct quote from Psalm 67.4 where it says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. How is it that the nations will be glad? How is it that they will sing for joy? They will only be glad. They can only sing for joy if they know the King of the nations, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, how can they know if someone is not sent to him? And that is exactly what we see here in this passage that these believers were sent out. They were scattered because of persecution. And they went in various different directions to Phoenicia, to Cyrus, and to Antioch. It says that they were, some of them were only speaking to Jews. They were staying only with those that they knew. But it says that there were some, verse 20, men of Cyrus and Cyrene, who in coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. We see that they broke out of this Jew-Gentile distinction. Perhaps they had heard what had taken place with Cornelius as we've looked at the last couple weeks, and they had seen that the Holy Spirit has been poured out not only on the Jews, but on the Gentiles. And now they're putting this to the test, so to speak. And Antioch is a wonderful test case Why? Because it's a city full of Gentiles, of Greeks. And it says that they went forth preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, preaching, I think, is a a strong term here. It literally means evangelizing. It comes from that Greek word, evangelium, the, the good news, the gospel. You could say that they were gospeling the good news, telling of what Christ had done, telling about his life and his death and his resurrection. And notice what it says in verse 22, that there was, or verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. The blessing of the Lord was upon them. This was the the work of the Lord as we have laid out, that God is not just to be the God of the Jews, but to be God of all the nations. And so they were partnering with God in this work And it truly is the work of God. It's not our work. We can't do it. And praise God that we can't. Because we have no power in ourselves. We can convert no one. We can change no one. But the Lord can and he does. And he uses an odd means. He uses you and I. He uses our life and uses our words and the, the hand of the Lord will always be upon that. If you are saying, Lord, I want to be a part of your work. I want to partner with you in the work of the expansion of the kingdom of God. That is a prayer that the Lord will bless. But you just must be ready to be used in that way. And so don't pray it unless you're, you're ready to go and, and ready to speak and ready to be uncomfortable because that's what it's going to take and that's what's going to happen And don't you love the fact here that those that that went to to speak to the Greek and speak to the Gentiles are not even named. We just know them as men from Cyprus and Cyrene. In other words, it's, it's not really important who they are. It's more important who they are doing it for. They were doing it for the Lord. All glory goes to him. 
And notice what happens. It says that there was a great number who believed and turned to the Lord. Faith and repentance was at work. Repentance and faith right there in Antioch, a very, very Roman city. In other words, you can say a very pagan city. It would have been the the third largest Roman city of its day. A half a million people lived in Antioch at this time. And yet what we see is that the Lord was at work. And the Lord is at work, even today. And what is it that he desires? He desires that all would know and worship him. Well, second, we see that we are to grow as disciples. And you see that happening here as those were coming to belief. They were coming into the church and they were growing together. It says in verse 22 that the report of this, this work that was taking on in Antioch came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to to go see, to go check it out. As they hear about this, in many ways, they're probably quite amazed, just like they were amazed that the Holy Spirit was poured out in Cornelius and and upon his home. And so here they're seeing that on a a much larger scale, that this whole city, the city of Antioch, it seems like there's a, a work of the Lord taking place. There's a revival. And this, like I said, would be the equivalent if you heard that there was a a great work of the Lord or a great revival taking place in in San Francisco or New York City. And so they say, well, we got to check this out. What's going on here? And so they sent up Joseph, also known as Barnabas. Now, if Barnabas is not one of your heroes, one of your biblical heroes. I hope that he will become such this day because we see this wonderful example laid out for us in this passage of Barnabas. First of all, he's called Barnabas. His real name was Joseph, which means son of encouragement. It was like a a nickname, but what a nickname, right? Some of us have nicknames, but they are not too flattering. This one, though, was a a wonderful, flattering nickname. It was a wonderful personality trait. It was the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of this brother. And he was sent up. He was chosen by the church to go. And he was a a great person to, to choose to send up. Why? Well, because they knew that he would spur on the church there. In other words, he would be an encouragement and not a discouragement. And that's important because there's some people in the church that think that they are the gift of discouragement. What do I mean by that? Well, oftentimes they they come to be helpful, which means that they come to, to point out the things that are, well, missing and lacking And, you know, well, generally could just be done better. That's oftentimes not help, is it? Really, it's just criticism under the guise of helping and assisting. And I think what we see here from Barnabas is a a wonderful model of what we should do when we see the work of the Lord 
happening, that we shouldn't throw cold water on it, but rather we should try to fuel it. We should try to kind of slowly blow up on it, right? If you, you remember making as a Boy Scout those little little fires where you try to get a spark going and then you, you want to blow ever so gently upon it so that the flames will start to, to increase. You don't want to, to blow really hard because you'll just blow it out or, or throw some water on it, which would definitely have it to be extinguished. But you think about Barnabas. We don't know how long he was a convert at this time. But let's say at at bare minimum, 10 years. And it was probably much longer than that. And he goes up to this, this church that's newly formed. It's new converts. And I wonder how well were they doing things as a church at this time? probably about as well as a child that just learned how to remove the training wheels on its bike and learning to ride on its own. That's probably what the church of Antioch looked like. They were, they were a little bit wobbly, right? They were all over the place. And it would have been easy for Barnabas to come up there and say, all right, I'm Barnabas. I'm here from the mothership the first church of Jerusalem. We've been doing this thing called church for a little while. Let me show you how it's done. Now, did they need that? Yes. Did they need spiritual growth? Absolutely. Did they need more mature stability and some governing that would help? All of those are true, but that is not what he led with. Look at what it says in verse 23. It says, when he came and saw all the problems, no. When he came and saw how poorly they were doing things, no, that's not what it says either. When it says we came and saw that they really needed his help, no, unfortunately it doesn't say that either. It says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Barnabas, you see, actually did the harder work. He came and saw that which was positive. And he saw that this was the work of God. This was the, the grace of God at work. As I was reading through this this week, it was a, a convinc- uh, convicting parenting notes, at least for me and perhaps for you as well. Because what do we often do with our kids? Well, well, we love these little buggers so much and we want them to be better than us. And so, so often we, we focus on only that which is not there, that which is missing instead of what is there and what the Lord is doing. And we want to point out that which is lacking rather than that which is good and pleasing. We need to be much more of a Barnabas, don't we? Barnabas noticed not what wasn't there, but what was there. He came and saw the grace of God, the work of God. And then you should see this because it's beautiful. You should double underline it in your Bible. It says he was glad. He was glad. It put a smile upon his face and joy in his heart. Now, what makes you glad? I tell you what, there's been a lot of glad sports fans around here lately. With a national championship and a world championship, it proves to me that Presbyterians indeed can be glad. 
and it's fun, it's enjoyable, but it still ought to pale in comparison to the gladness that fills our hearts to see the Lord at work in our life and in the life of others and in the life of his church. I tell you what, that's fun. One of the the greatest things that, that we get to do as elders is at the beginning of the elder meeting when we have new members come in and they share their testimony. I tell you what, the elders are always flying high because it's always a wonderful picture of what God's grace is at work, what it's doing, what it's accomplishing. And that work is as different as there are people in this room. And so we are always excited and we are always glad. The meetings always start at a high and then they kind of go downhill from there because we have to do the rest of the business of the church, which isn't always as fun. But it's fun to see God at work. It's fun to partner with ministries and missionaries that are doing the same and to be glad about it. Barnabas was glad. Why? Because the nations were glad. The nations were coming to understand the gladness that is in the God of God and the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what it does, that Barnabas does. It says that he exhorted them all to remain faithful. He exhorted them after encouraging them. And no doubt, as a result, that was demonstration that they were willing to listen. And he tells them to to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, to, to steady on, my friends. Which means do not grow stagnant. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. Go forward. Go on the straight and narrow. In other words, continue to, to grow. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That was the message of Barnabas. You've started well. Keep going. Keep steadfast. Keep at it. And what happened as a result? Well, it says that the, the church grew. Great many people were added to the church. That means they, they grew numerically. It means they grew spiritually. They grew ethnically. This people being gathered or added might be a reference to the, to the nations. The goyim, the, the Gentiles. What you see in this Beautiful churches that you no longer have Jews and Hellenists and Gentiles. You don't have three separate churches split ethnically. You have one church growing together, maturing with one another. Well, if Barnabas is not enough of a hero, he does something altogether incredible. He realizes he needs help. The church there in Antioch needed help, and he goes to to find Saul, which is also known as Paul. And he knows that Paul is going to be the perfect person to come and minister to the needs of this church in Jerusalem. You remember that Saul was persecuted in Jerusalem, and he had to flee because there were those there that were trying to kill him. And and the light bulb moment goes off in Barnabas' head. He thinks, well, he can't go to Jerusalem, but he surely could come here. And so Barnabas goes off to find him. And he finds him in Tarsus, Saul's hometown. Now, we don't, we don't think that he was living in his parents' basement at this time. He was there because he was ministering the gospel in his hometown. And he takes him back to Antioch. And this apostle that will be known as the apostle to the Gentiles, 
gets his first taste of Gentile ministry in Antioch. And you could say the rest is history. And that's all thanks to Barnabas. Again, the humility is tangible, isn't it? Barnabas could have said, you know what? These people need me. I'm the head honcho. I'm the big cheese. No one can do greater work than me. Now, in many ways, Barnabas knew his own limitations, what his gifts were and what they were not. And he was willing to give another the ability to step in and to minister that was better suited, that was more gifted. I tell you what, that is a humble leader that puts the greater good above his own. And in many ways, what we see is the protege becomes greater than the teacher. Because we'll see here it's Barnabas and Saul, but very soon it will become Paul and Barnabas. As Paul takes the the major lead in much of the expansion of the kingdom. But there's a principle there, isn't there? That the growing church needs one another. That we grow together. That we each use our, our gifts and our talents. We each play our parts not being one greater than the other, but each one is needed because we do it unto the Lord. That's how we grow. That's how the body of Christ grows. Well, third, and very quickly then, we see them showing forth the love of Christ. That a knowing church that knows Christ and a growing church that's growing in Christ will also be a a showing church. Not a showy church, but showing forth the love of Christ as servants, the least of these. And that's what we see at the very end of this chapter, them taking this attitude. It comes to them through a prophet, Agabus, that there was foretold by the Spirit a, a great famine that was going to take place. And indeed, this famine did take place. Luke verifies it. That's how you know it's a a true prophecy that it is fulfilled. It took place in the days of Claudius. And notice it says that it was going to be a famine over all the world. Well, if it's all the world, then that would have included Antioch as well. So you would think that the church in Antioch would have said, wow, we got a famine that's about to come upon us, and so um, we should store up. We need to pad our bank accounts. We need to stockpile our food pantries. We all need to become preppers. No, it doesn't say any of that. Rather, it says that they took a collection. And what did they do with that collection? They gave it away. They gave it away. Don't they know that a famine was coming to them too? Yep, they did. And yet, you see them giving generously. In fact, it says they determine each one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers. So in other words, it was a free will offering. I think this was above their their tithe. Each giving according to their own means as the Lord had blessed them. They took up this offering. And what did they do with this offering? They, They sent it to the brethren in Jerusalem, in Judea. They sent it to the mother church. Too often we're seeing 
money go from the mother church to the daughter church or from parents to children. We don't often see it going from children to parents or from the daughter to the mother, but yet that is exactly what takes place here. And it demonstrates something even greater than just an offering or just a collection. It demonstrates that the grace and love of God was at work. Why? Well, remember that Antioch was largely a Greek church. And you would have thought that perhaps the Greeks were maybe just a little bit bitter at the Jews, and specifically Jerusalem, perhaps even angry, thinking you unfairly cut us off for years. You excluded us as the people of God. You owe us. You should be sending money to us, not us to you. But that's not what we read at all, do we? We see that their hearts were filled with gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord. And they wanted to show that appreciation and show, I think, the the camaraderie that they had, that they were in this together. And this, no doubt, would have convinced, this would have been a, a wonderful gift to that church in Jerusalem. It perhaps even might have convinced some of those more stubborn Jews that, is this truly a work of God? this work of the Gentiles and other parts of the world absolutely would have convinced them that this truly is a a good thing. Look what is happening. Look at this coming together. As I've said before, the Jews and the Gentiles did not get along well. The Jews looked at the Gentiles like I look at Yankee fans. (laughs) And the Gentiles looked at the Jews like I look at Dodgers fans, right? So, There was no love loss, but here we see that there was true love, the true love of Christ. And the same is true today, that we show forth not ultimately our love. Yes, it is our love, but it's the love that's been given to us by Christ. And we can't help but do anything else. We're sent out in love, with love, and the message of Christ, just as Christ was sent for us. And so this no gross show, it's, it's not original at all. Hopefully it is, as we see, biblical. And even more so, I hope it's lived out amongst us, individually as well as corporately as believers, as the church of Jesus Christ, just like it was in Antioch. Our desire is that this purpose statement not just be something that sounds good on the back of the bulletin, but it is lived out in us as the Holy Spirit would use us. And I hope that each and every one of us would embrace it, that we would desire to know this God and worship Him that we would know the one true God and the Lord Jesus Christ that he has sent because that truly is life itself. And in knowing him, we would want to grow all the more, that we would learn maturity and wisdom and that the, the spirit would take away our love of sinning and that we would do so as the body of Christ and that he wouldn't allow us to just be content with what we have, but would always be propelling us out and outwards to show forth the love of Christ to our community and to our worlds. It really simplifies what we are called to do. And notice, if you haven't, that there was nothing supernatural about what was taking place in the work 
in Antioch. And what I mean by supernatural is that there's no angels. There's no miracles. No miraculous gifts. Just a faithful, ordinary church with ordinary people doing the work of God with the means of God. Again, if you were in Sunday school this morning, what Pastor Myers talked about correlates so well with this passage. You would think that we planned it, but we're really not that good. Um, It just works together so often that we read in the confession that it's through the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. The confession says, though fewer in number are administered with more simplicity, but yet with more fullness and more spiritual efficacy to all the nations. God has given us the means. Yes, they may not be sexy. They may not be these overabundant productions and wowing you every single week, but it's the means by which the Spirit works. And why does that work? Then, as well as now, well, let me just note one other thing and we'll close up. Notice it says in verse 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That wasn't a compliment. That was derogatory. It means little Christ. In other words, they were saying, there goes the little Christ. There goes the Christ wannabes. It was a form of mocking and ridicule, but it demonstrates, doesn't it, that they were true disciples. And even in the midst of the persecution and the ridicule, they were willing to be identified as Christ followers, walking in his footsteps, doing his work. As one commentator says, they were known as Christ's people because they spoke so often of Christ and were followers of his ways. Well, would that be shit of us? As the world sees us as Christians, they would see Christ, little Christ, faithfully following, obeying, serving in ordinary and mundane ways that he's called us to. And let us not see if God would do such an extraordinary work amongst us. The Christian church doing Christ's work. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for such reminders of what you have called us to through the Lord Jesus Christ. What Christ has given and sacrificed on our behalf, O Lord. How he has given us his all. And through that, O oh Lord, we are made alive to, to know you and to then grow in that faith and then to show that same love that you have lavished upon us. Lord, would that be true of us? We're by no means a, a perfect church, never will be, O oh Lord. And you've given us a mission, you've given us a purpose that is far greater, far beyond what we can accomplish, O oh Lord. And it will never be complete until you come again. But Lord, in our, in many ways, futile ways of trying to accomplish it, would you use just mundane, ordinary people like us to do an extraordinary work because the Holy Spirit blesses it, uses it, is glorified in and through it. And Lord, would that give us great gladness in our hearts to partner with you in the work of God, both here and around the world. Would you help us, O oh Lord, by your grace and through your spirit. Amen.